You're listening to the Impact Investing Podcast. I'm your host, David O'Leary. I'm a reformed free market capitalist who now spends his time trying to harness the power of the markets for good. And I started this podcast for anyone who wants to join me as I explore the world at the intersection of purpose and profit. So on today's podcast, we've got Tim Nash. Tim is the founder of Good Investing and blogger at Sustainable Economist. I'm going to let Tim tell you what those things are and what he's doing right now. But Tim, welcome to the podcast. Thanks a lot for being here. Oh, thanks so much for having me on the show. So yeah, why don't, why don't you give everybody a, a quick elevator pitch? Who are you? What do you do at uh, Good Investing and Sustainable Economist? Uh, sure. So uh, my, I kind of started with the Sustainable Economist blog. So I was trying to figure out kind of how I would invest my own money in a way that made sense financially, but also lined up with my personal values. And really, there wasn't a lot of information out there. Uh, so as I was doing research around socially responsible and green investment funds, uh, I created my blog, SustainableEconomist.com, as a place to really get that information out there and as sort of a starting point for people who are interested in sustainable investing. Well, a lot of people started reaching out to me and saying, Tim, I love what you're talking about, but how do I actually do this? Uh, a lot of people have struggled when it came to those first steps around their investments. And so uh, last year, I sort of rebranded with my company, Good Investing, uh, which is an investment coaching service. So I'm not a manager or I'm not a broker or an advisor. Instead, I'm more like an investment coach. And I'm there to help people figure out, uh, A, how they can be investing their money in a way that's in line with their values, and B, how to actually do online investing. The whole do-it-yourself investing world is kind of fraught with pitfalls. So I sort of help people figure that out. So what does your typical um, client demographic look like? Yeah, I mean, it is pretty wide. I would say in terms of, you know, I've had people from 18 years old up to, you know, probably in their early 70s working with me. But typically, uh, it's a lot of women. So I would say my target demographic is usually women aged, I'd say about uh, 35 to 50. Oftentimes, they're successful professionals uh, working in the nonprofit sector or as consultants or as lawyers or as doctors, but in a place where they don't have a pension. Right. And that so often uh, when it comes to their investments, they really care about what kind of companies they want to invest in, um, but really have no idea where to start when it comes to sort of do it yourself investing. And so they kind of find me and are like, hallelujah, you know, really happy that I exist because I can kind of walk them through the basics of uh, investment theory. And then also using really practical examples, show them investments that do line up to some degree with their values and you know have some some deep conversations around what actually you, what kind of companies you do want to support and which ones you want to avoid and then really hold their hand as they kind of pull the trigger and make the investments and oftentimes when people sort of buy investments for the first time it can be a little bit scary so you know making sure I'm there to provide that moral support while also make sure making sure that you know they are lined up with their sort of traditional risk return expectations, all that fun sort of traditional financial planning stuff, um, but then you know really linking it to their specific values and figuring out what is the impact that they want to make on the world. 
Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting because it sounds like a bad cliche that, right, like the man's driving the car, the couple's driving, the man's driving, doesn't want to stop for directions and the you know woman will stop and ask. And that just sounds like such a dated cliche. But when it comes to finances and getting help with finances, I've found as well, it tends to be disproportionately true that just women are more likely to ask for help and, and seek it. Yeah, and, and that it's just so funny to me because uh, when we look at the data, women are actually much better investors than men. Mm. Oftentimes, there are lots of data, data to back this up, but men are very susceptible to what we call the hot tip fallacy, mm. where they get this hot tip that they heard in a gym or you know their cousin's buddy you heard about this company and they triple their money. And men are so much more susceptible to that. And women are so much better at sticking to an investment plan sort of making those decisions up front and then really sticking to the plan and avoiding those emotional decisions. So again, there's a really sort of a large sense of irony there because, you know, I think the, the knock, I've heard so many sort of mansplainers say, oh, don't get emotional about this stuff. But when it comes to investing, I find that men are much more likely to fall into the traps of greed and fear. Whereas, you know, the women that I've worked with, they will ask for help. And if they get help and it makes sense and they come up with a plan, they tend to be much better at sticking to that plan, mm -hmm. which is ultimately going to result in higher returns over the long term. Yeah, that's, 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 uh, it, it is interesting. Um, it, funny enough, I, I, you know, I mean, I, I think it's probably, it's probably shades. I have met, certainly I've met women who have been guilty of, of similar things, but, but it's definitely, I think there are some definite gender um, differences that, that, that do come into play in the whole field of behavioral economics and behavioral finance is just fascinating. The decisions Absolutely. people make and what, what motivates their decisions, the fear and greed at play. And, and what's I, what I've always personally found fascinating about all this is that being aware of these fallacies, these predispositions we have to making these sort of emotional responses and how they can negatively impact your investment decisions um, doesn't actually do anything to, to stop you from making them which is amazing, right? You could just be completely aware and in one moment just be like, oh, right, that people are so silly that they do these things and they react this way. And then it happens to you in your portfolio and you're, you're guilty of it. And even as a professional myself, I've been guilty of, of, of the exact same thing in my portfolio. It's just, you, you're, we're not robots and shutting that off is, is real tough. So have, that's where having that third party to really be that, that coach, that person to walk mm. you down like, hey, what are you doing here? Let's calm down. Keep these perspectives is super valuable. I often describe myself as the sober second thought. Yeah, <laughs> right. When it comes to trading and when it comes to investing, sometimes it's just nice to have someone that you can bounce ideas off of. Yeah. Um, and that certainly, you know, and, and unfortunately in my world, what I found is that there are a lot of people who work in the environmental and social justice space who really know nothing about investing to start with. Right. That, that, and often kind of shut down when the conversation turns in that direction. You know, we've been having a big debate around a carbon tax here in Canada and looks like that's coming down the road. And, and yet when, you know, when people say, oh, it's a job killing carbon tax, it's going to ruin the economy. A lot of environmentalists don't really know what to say to that. Right. Or when we're talking about a policy like universal basic income, which would have such a huge impact uh, uh, um, with poverty here in Canada. Again, when it comes to this question of, of the impact on the economy, you know, oftentimes people that are really passionate about these issues don't really know how to respond. So I find that part of my job is, is providing that basic level of financial literacy and economic literacy um, that so many of us are lacking. I mean, they don't teach us this stuff in high school, 
right? There's no, it's not part of the curriculum understanding, you know, debt and, and in, uh, investments. And, and so, um, you know, I find that when people are armed with that information, um, that they're able to, to really advocate for their causes in a much more impactful way. It's really, so that's, that's really interesting. I'm curious. I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole. Uh, I'm curious about your thoughts on universal basic income. Do you, is this a, like, is that a subject area you, you've followed very closely and have very strong yeah. opinions about? Yeah, absolutely. I've studied it. And th- this is more on the macro side. And mm-hmm. know that, you know, I'm happy to go down the rabbit hole. I'm a big nerd when it comes to the macro side of economics. That's really where my passion lies. What I found is that the best way for me to make money in the short term is focusing on the micro side mm-hmm. of investments and personal finance. Mm-hmm. But on these macro conversations, really what it comes down to uh, is this funny little economic concept called the marginal propensity to save mm-hmm. versus the marginal propensity to consume. And it's a really weird concept. I mean, that language is just awful. But the way to think about it is that, you know, if I give you $100, you're going to spend part of that $100 and you're going to save part of that $100. And by saving it, you might, you know, tuck it under the mattress or invest it in the stock market. Now, we know that as an economic principle, consumption is really what drives our economy. You know, like it or not, you know, consumption is really the, the main driver there. And so what we find is that people who have less money, lower income people, have a much higher marginal propensity to spend. If I give them $100, they're much more likely to spend most of that $100. Whereas someone who's very wealthy is much more likely to save a bigger chunk of that $100. So, you know, actually this universal basic income, by any time we're putting money in the hands of society's poorest, that's what's going to result in more of that consumption, more of that economic activity, um, is really what's going to drive GDP higher. And it's ironic because, again, you know, one of the biggest arguments I get from the wealthy is they get really, really upset about this idea of redistribution of wealth, that all of a sudden I'm a Marxist, I'm a socialist, right? Like it's just you're trying to redistribute wealth. Uh, what they don't want to admit to themselves is that our, fun, our, our society's sort of fundamental default setting is that wealth gets redistributed from the poor to the rich. I mean, people without money are more likely to be in debt. If you have debt, you're paying interest, right? Who are you paying that interest to? It's the wealthy. It's the people who own debt. If you own bonds, right, you're earning money from debt. So our society, our economy, this capitalist system automatically distributes cash from the poor to the rich, which is why we've seen this really growing uh, spread uh, in terms of income inequality. And so with universal basic income, what it does is it fundamentally, you know, puts money in the hands of people who are more, much more likely to spend it rather than save it. And in doing so, I think is a really, really good economic policy. Now, that's not even talking about the idea of a social safety net and, you know, helping marginalized people fall through the cracks. Like that's sort of my yeah, pure, pure economic rationale for why this is a good idea. And then on top of that, I would layer the fact that, you know, I think that so many of the brightest, smartest, most incredible people on this planet have come from rough beginnings. And I think if, if we gave every child born in this world the opportunity to live up to their full potential, right, without being constrained by poverty, uh, I think we would have a lot more geniuses and a lot more really incredible, brilliant people on this planet. So, you know, that's, that's kind of where I stand on that issue. 
Um, you know, like I said, there you know lots and lots of uh, of ways understanding how the economy sort of you know is uh, uh, relates to social issues and environmental issues. Um, but that's where I stand on that one. So from the same sheet here, I mean, I haven't I haven't dug into universal basic income in in any exhaustive detail, but I mean, the whole entire idea of trickle down economics is, you know, I think was exposed as a ridiculous fallacy. And, you know, looking at the amount of money that Trump's latest tax cuts, corporate tax cuts led to you know, how much of that actually led to anything other than to increase salaries of employees, for example, as opposed to share buybacks has been pretty well documented in that short period of time. I also just think if you're just a pure you know, ruthless capitalist who's just only interested to grow and preserve their their wealth. You should be very interested in redistributing some of that wealth because if it the imbalance stays as as pronounced it is as long as it is, that's where you get revolutions and people like the poor realize, hey, there's way more of us than there are of you. <laughs> you know, and this is like now we're like French Revolution, like right, lopping off the <laughs> heads of the aristocrats. I mean, I think that's an exaggeration, but like it doesn't get that long before there's massive social unrest. And I think we're starting to see some of the signs of that. We absolutely are. And I would argue the two biggest risks right now to sort of the global economy are uh, income inequality and climate change. And both have the potential to sort of very radically change uh, the, the way that our economic structures exist right now. So, you know, again, for wealthy people that kind of have their head in the sand on those two issues and, you know, are happy to make more money as they each get worse, uh, I think you're right. I think it's only a matter of time before we hit a bit of a breaking point. I don't know if that's going to happen in the next decade or even in our lifetimes, you know, we'll see. But certainly um, those are the two issues that are really front in mind of mine for me uh, as I'm making my investment. So let's just reverse course a little bit here and let's just rewind all the way to being like, I'm fascinated. So where did you? Where did you start your, like, just go right back to being, where were you born? Sure. Where did you grow up? Where did, how did, like, what shaped how you got to where you are now? Uh, sure. So I've got a, I've got a fun story. So uh, I'm, I'm originally from London, Ontario. I grew up with my dad in the investment industry. So I very much grew up around stocks and bonds. I studied economics and philosophy out at Dalhousie University on the East Coast. So I was a bit of a strange one in each of those faculties. And as I was learning the economic models, the philosopher inside of me was, had, some, had some issues. Um, I, at the time, I couldn't quite you know, put my finger on it. I couldn't describe the problems that I had. Uh, I, I like to think that sort of my spidey sense was tingling in knowing that there was something wrong with these economic models. And it wasn't until my third year uh, of university, I, I got accepted to do an exchange to New Zealand. And that's where I took a course in triple bottom line economics this idea of people, planet, and profit. And light bulbs just started going off in my head. It really helped me understand what, the, the, what we were missing with the traditional economic models. On my way home from New Zealand, I visited my sister who was uh, working in Bangalore, India. She was there on a CETA program, the old Canadian International Development Agency. So she was working for a nonprofit. And uh, I spent a couple weeks with her in Bangalore. And then she didn't feel comfortable traveling around India by herself. So being the good little brother that I am, I let her pay for my bus ticket and pay for my train tickets. And we toured around India for about two months. And that's where I saw extreme poverty for the first time. And it really made me realize what a sheltered, privileged existence I had growing up in London. So I went back to my fourth year economics program full of questions. 
It was abundantly clear to me that our economic system was not working for the vast majority of people in the world. It certainly wasn't working for the planet itself. It was like, hey, let's talk about this. And my professors didn't have answers. They kind of shut me down. A couple of them said, oh, go, go off, do an independent study project. Uh, most of them just stopped the conversation right away. One of them took it out on me on the final exam, you know, that I had sort of the audacity to question some of these economic models. Um, but really, you know, I, I graduated with my BA in economics with way more questions than I had answers. Uh, so I went to Sweden and I did my master's in sustainability. Um, I studied earth system science, so basic biology, chemistry, physics, you know, systems thinking and design, which is a lot of fun. Um, I did my thesis looking at this idea of socially responsible investment. Now, as soon as I brought up the words ethical, responsible, sustainable, people automatically assumed lower financial returns. Like right off the bat, that's where their brain went, okay, how much money do I have to sacrifice in order to do the right thing? But everything I was learning in Sweden is that there is a business case for sustainability. The companies use less water, less energy, less materials. Their employees are more productive because they actually give a damn about the company, right? And uh, on the revenue side, you've got customers that are more loyal and often willing to pay a premium for organic, fair trade, ethically sourced goods. So I was sitting there wearing my economist hat saying, wait a minute, higher revenues, lower costs, a more productive workforce. This is a recipe for profitability. Um, I did my thesis connecting the dots between sustainability and profitability, came back to Toronto in July of 2008, ready to take the investment world by storm. Well, I'm sure you know what happened in October of 2008, right? <laughs> the stock market crashed and it was the worst crash since the Great Depression. So I moved back home to my parents' basement, <laughs> spent a couple months banging my head against the wall. And in January of 2009, decided to hell with it. I'm going to start my own business. So I taught myself HTML and I built a really ugly website. And I went on clip art and I printed some really ugly business cards. And boom, I was a consultant. That's, that's kind of how I got my start in this field. Um, my first business model was a bit of a bust. Uh, I had gone after the big fish, foundations, pensions, endowments. I had a little bit of success. I helped a group called the Catherine Donnelly Foundation shift their $40 million endowment into responsible investments. Uh, they divested from fossil fuels before the oil markets crashed, and they've been leaders in impact investments like community bonds and green bonds, which have earned a higher return than traditional bonds over the last few years. So they made more money while aligning it with their mission. Um, I thought that was my golden ticket, that with their recommendation, foundations would be lined up around the block to hire me. But sadly, meeting after meeting was no, no, not yet, sorry, no. Um, so about six or seven years ago, I found myself broke with a failed business model, uh, unable to support myself financially. So that's when I got my side hustle. Uh, I started teaching intro to micro, intro to macro economics at Sheridan College. And, and I would sort of sneak in sustainability wherever I could. And it was about that time that, again, I was very lucky, very privileged. I got an early inheritance from my grandpa. Um, it allowed me to pay off my student loans, and I had about seven or $8,000 of my own money that I wanted to invest. So that's when I started researching, you know, and starting to think, okay, how would I invest my own money? Everything kept pointing me to this idea of do-it-yourself online investing, that that was the way to keep my fees as low as possible. And so, you know, I looked at, there's this great blog called The Canadian Couch Potato, and I looked at this couch potato portfolio, and I loved the theory behind it. 
But I looked at the companies inside and there was, you know, oil companies and tobacco and military and oh, it just made me want to gag. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I really, I couldn't stomach owning those companies. So that's when I started researching socially responsible and green ETFs, exchange traded funds. Um, I created my blog, sustainableeconomist.com, just as a resource to be able to put my thoughts down, you know, share these ideas with others. And it kind of took off. Um, people just started reaching out to me saying, Tim, how do I do this too? And, you know, over the last, I'd say about five or six years, I've helped about 250 people uh, align their portfolio with, with their values um, and really, you know, have really embraced this fee-for-service model. So I get paid by the hour. So that way I have no conflicts. I don't really care what people end up buying. I can just provide them with research, all, you know, the different options that are available and coaching to really help people overcome those psychological barriers, but also the technological barriers. Like sometimes it's a little bit funny filling out the forms and you know, when it comes to online trading, it can get a little bit complicated, can feel a little bit scary. So helping people kind of understand how it works and really removing a lot of those barriers. So yeah, that's, that's really interesting to me. When a client comes to you and they say, hey, I wanna help doing this, you're gonna yeah. help them kind of open up some sort of trading platform that allows them to trade on their own. So a discount brokerage is probably a prime. You got it. So I use Quest Trade. That's the one that I use. But yeah. I've had clients, like every bank has it. So like RBC Direct Investing, TD has Web Broker, Scotia has iTrade. I like the independent ones. I find they're cheaper. And yeah. I'm, so Quest Trade, Q Trade, Virtual Brokers, uh, you know, Well Simple is supposedly going to be offering this service soon. Yeah, so right. excited to see how that's going to change things. Um, but really, you got it. So the one of the first steps is opening an online brokerage account. And that's where people can hold RRSPs, TFSAs, RESPs, all those different sort of registered investment accounts. You can open up those accounts with an online broker. Mm -hmm. And then we get the money inside those accounts. And I help people understand the differences, especially if they're just getting started, figure out which type of account is right for them. Um, and then once the money's in there, then they are able to start trading. So, so now walk me through. So you're going to say, okay, they, they, somebody's got $50,000 and they've got, you know, uh, they've got a time, five, 10 year time horizon. Maybe it's more and Hey, or I don't need, let's say it's in their RSP and they don't need this money for a while. And they say, yeah. great. So what do we, what do we do here? So you're going to look at probably things like an asset allocation. You're going to start from yeah, So well, really what I find is, is the hook for me because David, I know how boring this stuff is, right? And you and I, we're kind of nerds, so we can talk about right. asset allocation, <laughs> stocks and bonds, and we can get into that. But for most people, like they just, they don't right. care. Right. So what I really do is I engage their heart. I engage them with their values. And the starting point is always about learning about ETFs and mutual funds by opening them up and looking at what's inside I do a little bit, I have a little shtick where I'm sort of like a tour guide and I walk people through those data sheets so that they can understand all this kind of, you know, bizarre language and these acronyms that are just, you know, uh, uh, really confusing for a lot of folks. And so, and that what we do is very quickly, we get to the holdings and we get to see what companies are inside these funds. And it's amazing to me the, the emotional reaction that people have. Mm -hmm. And especially if they come to me, you know, and most people that find me are environmentalists or social justice activists or like who actually care about this stuff. Mm -hmm. And when they open up and look at the companies inside, 
it's they get disturbed. I mean, it's really you can look at the top 10 holdings and I guarantee you there are going to be two or three in there that you're going to kind of shake your head at. So the first process really, you know, the first step is education. And what we do is we learn by experiential, by opening up these funds, looking at what's inside. And I get clients to look at the companies and either give me a thumbs up, which is like, yeah, this feels good. I like it. A thumb sideways, which is like, yeah, I don't love it, but there are no deal breakers in here. Or a thumbs down, which is like, no, not one penny of my money is going into these companies. And everyone has a different definition of good and evil. So everyone draws that line at a different place. So by going through, and the way I do it typically is going through the economy sector by sector. And so we look at these sector funds and people get this language of understanding, you know, tech versus financials versus real estate versus consumers, right? All these different sectors. We get comfortable with that language. We actually look at the companies inside and they identify which companies are a thumbs down. Um, from there, what we do is I provide options. So there are lots of these different socially responsible and green uh, investment funds. So once I know where someone draws the line, from there I'm gonna start showing them options. We're gonna go through the companies together, understand that sometimes there are trade-offs, right? So as we become more sustainable, sometimes the fees start to go up, sometimes we lose out on diversification, Sometimes they're riskier, especially with the green, like the, the sort of the hard green stuff can be kind of riskier. So we make sure we understand that. Uh, I joke that for part of the portfolio is sort of doing less evil, right? That's getting exposure to the big, large companies, but avoiding the ones that are really a thumbs down. And then part of it is doing more good and understanding, you know, what is the change that you want to see in the world? What is the impact? What is your legacy? You know, if we're talking about retirement, what is the world you want to retire into? If we're talking about, you know, your kid's RESP for their education, what is the economy that you want your kid to graduate into after school? And that we can, you know, we want to be deliberate. Oftentimes, those sort of doing more good funds can be a little riskier. So we'll be deliberate about how much our portfolio we sort of carve out for that. But the goal is, is to avoid the companies that are really a hard no that you just, you would never support this company, you would never buy their products, you would never have anything to do with them, right? So why would you invest in them? You wanna get those out of there. And then part of it is about engaging their values. Uh, I remember I had one client early on, you know, she would describe herself as a little bit of an anarchist, right? She's, you know, very much involved in a lot of social justice activist groups and she had inherited a bit of money, came to me super, super skeptical about these issues. And as we were going through the educational process, it was like pulling teeth. She just really wasn't, you know, wasn't into it, wasn't getting excited. It was really boring. And then we're opening up this one fund and we see a company in there that she recognizes. The co a company was called Shimano. And this is a bicycle parts company, right? And she was really active in like the bike culture. There's this group called Bike Pirates here in Toronto, right? And so they go around and they collect these old bikes and they fix them up. She's like, Shimano? I can invest in Shimano. I know this company. So, mm -hmm. Yeah. The next meeting, she comes to me with an Excel spreadsheet full of like a dozen bicycle companies. She had done the research, looked at the charts, had a little column for the dividend, was telling me why she liked this one and not that one in there, right? So obviously we didn't invest all of her money in bike stocks, but by carving out like part of her portfolio for something that she really cared about, and that she understood and she got excited about, that's what allowed her to actually learn about investing, find that passion, find that fire to be able to learn, make conscious decision about the world, 
that she wants to invest in, right? And, and actually get excited about uh, uh, investing her money. So the investment side of me, the CFA in me says like, holy smokes, investing is hard. I mean, in some ways it's not, it's, it's made to seem harder than it is. Like executing yeah. an investment is way easier than people think making good investment decisions over time that lead to, you know, not blowing up your portfolio yeah. or not even not blowing up your portfolio, but just doing better than you could in the, yeah. by having it professionally managed is, is actually really, really hard. Um, and, and part of that is behavioral, but part of it is, I mean, as much as I dislike the sentiment of it, the investment market is a zero sum game, right? Like you, when you trade on the open market. Except so, okay. So I'll push back a little bit there. Yeah, please. Because, uh, uh, it, I mean, it's a zero sum game, but with an ever growing pie, right? right. So the S and P just hit an all time high, mm-hmm. right? So the pie is growing and that I want to be clear that I really tend to stay away from investing in individual companies, right? That would be what I would consider like mad money. That would be a small slice of the pie that, you know, I, I often joke, I'm not a day trader, I'm a decade trader. Mm-hmm. So what we're buying are primarily, especially with this doing less evil part of the portfolio, are our index ETFs. So these are ETFs that track an index. These are going to be broad. They're going to be very diversified. We're going to make sure we're diversified by sector. We're also going to be diversified globally. And of course, we're going to make sure we own both stocks and bonds that tend to be counterbalanced you know, the uh, negatively correlated in our word. In, in, um, and so that uh, really we're, you know, diversification is a core value here. And so the ultimate goal is to have that nice diversified portfolio that is going to simply capture the average market return. That's really the goal here is I'm not trying to sort of generate alpha or outperformance or, you know, get like 10x times portfolios. We're trying to basically capture the average rate of the market return in a way that people are ethically comfortable with. Mm-hmm. Now, p- part of this is understanding my thesis, which I, is that as we look forward, especially if we're looking decades ahead, that over the next 20, 30, 40 years, right, we're going to see all, all these young millennials, you know, everyone's now coming to the point where, you know, we're investing and, and we've got more money and more economic control. And guess what? We prefer to support companies that are doing good things in the world. As well, what we're seeing is that government regulation is moving in this direction. Now, there's obviously we've got Donald Trump as president, right? So I don't think anyone really thinks that Cole's going to be making a comeback, although he's doing his darndest, right? So the pe- political pendulum will swing, right, back and forth. But ultimately, again, if we're looking over the next 10, 20, 30 years, I have to think that politicians are going to be taking issues like climate change seriously. And if they do, and if we have further regulation limiting the amount of pollution, right, limiting a lot of these sort of destructive activities, now we're in a situation where the companies that are leaders in sustainability, that have been ahead of the curve, that have been more ethical, are in a position where they're going to be making more money than their peers that have been dragging their feet right, that have continued to sort of exploit at every turn, chasing those short-term profits, right? We can see, like, they're not even earning great short-term profits anymore. And that certainly when we look over the long term, there's no doubt in my mind that investing with this sort of ethical lens has the opportunity to outperform. 
Yeah, so I, th- I I think that's the key caveat here, right? Is you're you're sticking DTS for the most part. These are no. these are already managed portfolios for clients, as opposed to, hey, we're going to pick a bunch of stocks and build a portfolio based on the fact that you know you like biking and you like this company and it makes a good product, which ignores tons of other factors. Not the least of which is the valuation of that company. It may be a great company, but at what price? And I think that's sort of the key message that most people miss. Where you know, Lint, it may be a great company and you love their chocolate, but the the whole entire half of that equation, no, more than half of the equation, value investors would argue it's all of the equation is, yeah, but at what price? And anything can be attractive if the price is right. Um, now, fair. ignoring the sustainable side of it, right? From the I wouldn't I wouldn't discount though the knowledge of an active consumer because they often know know the information if the product starts going downhill yeah. or if there's an issue in that company. You know, if they're on the floor, if they're using that product day in, day out. Right. Right. So I think it's one of these things where when it comes to investing, you know, it's, it's, there's, I often joke that it's much more of an art than it is a science. And I think that it's all about finding that balance. Right. And I think that what we need to do, my main goal above and beyond everything else is just to get people excited to learn about it. Right. Because regardless of where you sit on that issue, I think we can definitely agree that financial literacy is really lacking in Canada right now. And so for me, it's, it's more of a kind of a means to the end. It's not the end in of itself, investing just in, you know, companies that you're excited for and that you think are going to do really well. I mean, you know, I've talked to so many people that have gotten burned by betting on specific green technologies. Um, I, there's a company, Ballard, you know, they did these, these uh, uh, hydrogen fuel cell systems. Canadian company, you know, one time it was like, this was the future. Arnold Schwarzenegger was like, you know, his hydrogen fueled SUV, right? And it was like, this is the future. And then it really flopped. Um, And that now we're seeing that it looks like it's going to be electric vehicles, right? Right now powered by lithium ion batteries until a better battery technology comes up, which it could really at any moment in time. So this is why I really caution against investing in specific uh, industry or specific companies or like specific technologies, especially um, just because I've seen so many people get burned on that. And so again, even more reason why it makes sense, you know, if you're going to be doing it yourself, you know, it makes sense to have someone to be able to run these ideas past yeah. to make sure that you're not putting more money into, you know, these riskier things than you can really afford to lose mm-hmm. and ensuring that your portfolio is properly diversified and at a risk level that is like suitable for where you're at in life and what your financial goals are and, and kind of, uh, you know, what it is that you're expected to earn. Yeah. No, and I think that's, I think that's, that's exactly right. I mean, it's the 80, 20 principle, right? Like with 20% of the work, you can get kind of 80% of the results if you've taken care of asset allocation, basic diversification, but stuff that's hard for a lot of people. They don't, yeah, it's intimidating. The industry is intentionally op- opaque and confusing to make it seem more difficult than it is and keep people from being empowered with their money. I mean, that's, I think that's just a well, really clear. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit and, and get to there's. I mean, I've got a long list of topics we get to, which <laughs> we're not all going to get to today. But um, let's talk about an issue that's kind of close to my heart is I see this, this nascent space. I worry quickly um, that it will adopt many of the bad habits that the traditional investment space has had, and and in in particular around marketing, flash advertisement, and sort of PR 
image versus substance. So I worry that when the for-profit world, you know, the, the, the pure capitalists realize the money that's to be made from people caring about aligning their money and their values, it's real easy to come out to market with a, an investment product that is well marketed as being socially responsible, as being an impact investment, as having some positive impact, but really is there's, there's nothing to it. And I think we've seen um, some examples of that already where they're sort of very questionable substance to the product, but certainly are really marketed in an appealing and attractive way to this target demographic. How, how do you feel about that? How do you look at that? Yeah. So the term I use for that is greenwashing, mm-hmm. right? And, um, you know, and so there it extends like beyond just like the, the environmental stuff, right? Right. And so, just you know, they're, they're exactly, I, I know it best from the environmental space to talk about the environment in the, the investment space in the investment world. Um, is it okay if I call out a couple of people? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. My day. You don't have any sponsors for the podcast yet? No. So, you know, <laughs> two things that drive me nuts in Canada. So the first is there's a firm called ethical funds. Yeah. And this was one of the first to do socially responsible investing. And in fairness, you know, their approach is to work with companies. So they own stocks and companies that maybe are considered sort of a little unethical, but that they use their power as shareholders to push those companies in a more sustainable direction. However, I think most people, most investors that you ask and you talk to them about an ethical fund, they assume that they are simply not owning companies that are unethical. So the number of clients I've had who come to me because you know, they, someone showed them ethical funds and they were like, hallelujah, this is great. Been looking for an ethical fund. And then they open it up and they see ExxonMobil in there, you know, or they see companies that are just not in line with their values at all. You know, it really turns them off. Uh, the other example is Wealthsimple. You know, Wealthsimple has a socially responsible por- portfolio, which kudos to them, you know, for having that. I'm so happy that they've got a socially responsible option. It's phenomenal. Um, but, you know, one of the most popular blogs uh, that I've written is looking inside, looking under the hood and asking how sustainable is Wealthsimple's socially responsible portfolio. And spoiler alert, like it's not very, you know, there's kind of something in there for everyone to hate. It does have military companies in there. It does have pipeline companies in there. It does have oil sands companies in there. It does have tobacco companies in there, you know, and so it's just really, you know, it's, it's, it's hard for people. Um, so I think that, you know, it does exist within the industry. I think that like other industries, what we need are, you know, and whether it's nonprofits or whether it's for profits like myself, you know, that can open it up, look at what's inside, uh, show that level of transparency that a lot of the times they're not going to be including in their promotional materials Hmm. and, and really, you know, verifying um, you know, having that, that sort of third party opinion that's able to sort of conclusively open up, open it up, look at what's inside and let people know what they're actually investing in. Yeah, one thing, sorry, go, go ahead. ahead. No, no, go ahead. Finish. You know, one thing that, that I will say is that I love ETFs so much more than mutual funds um, just because of the disclosure rules. Uh, mutual funds, you know, they, they only have to disclose their top 10 holdings. Uh, they do take snapshots like 20, twice a year. I have to dig through these like 400 page PDF documents to get that list of companies. Whereas with ETFs, like it's two clicks. So again, a, a big part of it is just having that financial literacy, um, helping people understand, you know, how do you find an ETF data sheet? And then what are the two buttons you click on in order to get a full list of all the holdings? 
Yeah, I mean, so uh, yeah, there's a there's a bunch of stuff. I want to circle back a little bit on. Um, it's interesting because I have experiences both both ethical and uh, and with well simple and well simple's friend. I I mean, I agree that there there are a lot of our clients at Kind Wealth don't um, end up using well simple because it's highly effective, it's convenient, it's inexpensive, um, and just does a real good job of sort of a, a one-stop shop for your traditional investments. But on the SRI side, I, I, I don't bother investing in that myself. Um, and I'm a client of, of Wealthsimple. And I, you know, usually tell clients for, you know, if they want my opinion on it, I don't, I wouldn't bother because the co- it's A, too expensive. And B, I, I agree that there's nothing particularly impressive about the the portfolio. Um, so given the additional cost, and it's quite a bit more expensive. I think it's kind of in the neighborhood of 50, 60 basis points. Um, uh, so it is a little more expensive. I would push you to look at the returns on it because my understanding, and you know, it's day to day, I'd want to double check it, but I think it's done better than the traditional portfolio net of fees. Yeah, but I don't make the investment decisions that way. You don't, okay. you don't look at the past three years and then go, oh, well, then that means it's going to do better going forward, right? That's but the again, that most people think. I would say from a long term. So in my mind, it's- No, because the, the, choice, the choice isn't, isn't the, the only choice isn't, oh, well, just the default traditional- Portfolios, you got all, you you have all, all sorts of other options, but but that's I, I I do think that it's so we, this is where we would have a disagreement. I don't think I think the jury is out on I think on on whether SRI investments inherently will perform better. And keep in mind, this is coming from the industry, which, as you say, was was stacked to be like the default assumption was oh they'll underperform, right? And and so I think if we're seen, having a conversation about whether it outperform, I'll take that. If, yeah, yeah, no, and, I, and it I, does, you know, sort of just as well, or like, you know, within the ballpark. And I'm predisposed to believe you. Like, I want it to be the case that SRI will outperform. I think it's even very possible. I'd even go so far as to say it's likely, but that the data analyst in me says, like, we don't have enough data because you need you need Ooh. decades of data to prove something in the investment markets, right? We don't have decades of data for SRI investing. We've got, you know, we've we have got a decade, decade or and a half, maybe. Yeah. Right. So I, all I'm saying is I'd like to see that borne out over a much longer period of time before I felt definitive. But um, so then I will look at like when it comes to cost is like, is the cost worth it? That's the only right. question. That's fair. So anyway, but on ethicals front, it, what's interesting is so my my I had two sort of touch points with them. One was early in my career as a financial advisor at, T, at Canada Trust before TD bought it. And I had some clients, uh, some of my very first clients, because I just became a financial advisor. I'd worked my way up from a teller. And, uh, and these clients came in, and they were sort of very traditional, kind of hippie-ish <laughs> younger clients. And they had ethical funds in their portfolio. And this is like the late 1990s. So this is very early in the SRI um, movement. And they had gotten, they had had them for a few years, and they hadn't done all that great. And they were sort of kind of giving up on that idea. And I don't know if we should bother with these anymore. Um, and that was, and then flash forward kind of eight years from there. And I was leading the analyst team at, at Morningstar Canada. And our job was to evaluate mutual funds. And one of the fund companies we evaluated was with was ethical. And uh, we went out to Vancouver and a part of our due diligence is to go out and meet all the money managers running the portfolios and talk to the firms about what they do. And I left, um, so t- with two observations, one was I was very impressed at that time relative to the rest of the industry that was doing any of that, um, that they had a dedicated team of people who were 
very passionate about the research that they were doing. Um, and to the second observation that you made is they take a, a, a very different approach, which not as different, but it's, it's a, it's a, as it's, it's an approach that is distinct from others, which is we're not going to divest of in, industries or sectors entirely. We're going to work with the best uh, firms within them and, or really put pressure when we take a, an ownership push position in a company, we're going to try to put pressure on those companies to improve their practices. And that led me to the conclusion at the time, and I still feel this way to a large degree, it's real difficult to, to outsource your ethical decision-making. So your value, <laughs> right? To say, hey, money manager, you just make this socially responsible, make this ethical, make this aligned with my values. They'd have to know you real well. <laughs> it can't be done through an ETF or a mutual fund structure where they have million, you know, hundreds of thousands or tens of thousands of of, of clients. Um, and so I had sort of left with like, if you care about this stuff, you really want to put some time, energy, and thought into, wait, what are these investments all about? Does that actually align with my values? Because the worst of all would be you pay a premium price. And a lot of them, as you mentioned, are premium, you know, prices, especially the mutual funds. Yeah. Especially the mutual funds. And, uh, and so, and then, and then to not get it actually meet with right. what you intended. That's just the worst. So I love what you're doing in terms of helping people <laughs> yeah. really think through what's important to me and does that actually, what I'm buying and investing in here actually match with what I, exactly. but, but I left ethical with a, with a very positive view because the, the folks there yeah. really were very passionate. It just felt to me like that's a real big distinction people should know about here. And yes. a lot of people don't. And it's just, for me, it's not, I'm not trying to like knock them too hard here. You know, again, a lot of good people doing a lot of good work. It's just not what people expect. So I think there's fun, and whether it's so with their marketing or whatever, but it's just when people hear the term ethical fund, they kind of make an assumption about what that means. And what I find is that people are very, very surprised mm -hmm. when we open that up and look at what's inside. And you're right, you know, when it comes to these value judgments, it's so hard and it's so personal. And that's why, you know, I'm done with trying to project my definition and my values on other people. And really, it's about putting things on the table to say, here, here's what it is. What do you think? How do you feel? You know, does this align? Right. And also knowing that, you know, there's a huge evolution in products that are available. So, you know, there, there are now ETFs that look at uh, women in leadership positions. There's an ETF that tracks the UN Sustainable Development Goals. There's an ETF that tracks organic food as a sector, as a growth sector. Um, you know, I just saw there's a, a new ETF that's launched uh, and it's partnered with the NAACP. And mm -hmm. so not only is it about diversity in workforce and in management, but it's also that a portion of that higher fee goes as a donation to the NAACP. Yeah. So really, this is evolving very, very quickly right now where we're starting to see a lot more options that are available, uh, which from my perspective is great, but I get how people can get really confused by it and can get stuck into this place of, well, where do I start and which products are right for me? And how does this fit into a normal, you know, traditional portfolio? So for me, it's really about kind of marrying that, the traditional financial planning, the, you know, modern portfolio theory, you know, all those wonderful things that we've spent so much time studying. And that, you know, figuring out that balance, how do we still adhere to that while still doing it in a way that does align with an individual's values? And it won't be perfect. You know, I always have to caution my clients at the start of the process, 
that inevitably there are trade-offs. The fees might be a little bit higher. The risk might be a little bit higher. You know, we might give up a little bit in terms of diversification, right? But that really it's about figuring out what makes sense to them. And what I find is that, you know, a lot of people, when they go through this process, you know, when they compare it to, you know, whatever they were doing before, whether it was a higher fee mutual fund or whether it was, you know, their dad's, you know, strategy of picking blue chip dividend stocks, you know, which seems to be a really popular strategy here in Canada, their portfolios do tend to outperform over time. And obviously, small sample size, but, um, you know, I'm almost willing to like make you a bet where we can look at like whether it's the Jancy Social Index versus the TSX 60 or like, you know, we can each sort of pick our, our responsible benchmark and, you know, let's make a bet and look at it again in a decade to sort of see where we're at. And I'm very confident that they will do at least as well, if not better. And that as we go further in time, a longer term horizon, especially going back to, you know, something I said uh, uh, at the start, which is the two biggest issues in the world is facing right now are income inequality and climate change. And that I really think that there's a huge problem in the financial industry right now where they're really not acknowledging, and specifically climate change is the most obvious one for me in terms of the financial implications. And you know, the, a lot of the, the industry is just not catching on to that. They're not taking it seriously. So I do see you know, opportunity for a performance. I think time will tell. You know, I think that, that, that I'll certainly be watching there. I'll be, you know, writing my blog and, you know, seeing what new ETFs come up and tracking their performance compared to the benchmark. And that, um, you know, but I'm really, really hopeful that as people see that they can do just as well financially while also feeling really good about their investments, um, that more and more people are going to be making that intentional, deliberate decision uh, to be able to align their investments with their values. Right. Yeah, I hear you. That's great. Um, so two quick, hopefully quick uh, uh, questions to, before we sort of wrap it up. One is, um, do you have, uh, can you sort of define for the audience and everybody, I've, there's a lot of varying definitions for this. Um, so I'm curious on yours on how you define for your clients the difference between SRI and impact investing. Sure. And then do you have any impact investments that you particularly... Um, yeah, great question. So, okay. So SRI, socially responsible investing, that would fall under the, what I call doing less evil part of the portfolio, right? Um, uh, impact investments are what I would... would would fall under the, what I call the doing more good side of the portfolio. Yeah, and I describe even, them as offense and defense. Yeah, sh- yeah, I'm into it. That, yeah. absolutely. But I would even go so far as like a lot of my green ETFs, green investments, I don't consider those impact investments because if they are market instruments, right, I'm kind of, I'm buying them through the market. I feel it's more of an indirect impact. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sort of a long-term, the, the invisible hand side of it. Whereas I really, when it comes to impact investments, for me, it's doing more good on the bond side of my portfolio with things like community bonds, green bonds, microfinance, a lot of those products. And now there are, there is this new area of equity-based crowdfunding. And I would consider that an impact investment sort of on the riskier equity side. But the vast majority of products that are available to retail investors, like you and I, people that don't have millions of dollars, are on the bond side. So which is where they fit into my portfolios. Uh, for me personally, uh, I own two impact investments. Uh, I do own a solar share bond. So solar share, they sell solar bonds. It's a nonprofit co-op here in Ontario. Uh, invest in community-owned solar projects, which I love. Um, the second impact investment I own is a CSI community bond. 
So I work out of the Center for Social Innovation. Uh, they're a nonprofit co-working space. That's where I started like nine years ago when I first was, you know, figuring this stuff out. And uh, it's been invaluable to me as, as a physical space for me to have meetings and workshops and bring people in, but also as a community. You know, someone to, to, to high five when I land a new client, someone to a shoulder to cry on when I lose a big client. Um, and so I own, I think it's about $1,300 worth of CSI community bonds when they bought, uh, they bought a building at 192 Spadina. Um, so rather than paying rent every month, they decided to issue a community bond, buy the building itself, and then collect rent from us tenants and use that to pay back the mortgage and the bondholders. So my solar bond pays me 5% annually. I am locked in for five years, so I'm giving up that flexibility there. Um, the CSI bond, I believe, is paying me 4.5%. Uh, again, I am locked in for five years, so I'm giving that up. But both of those have done so much better than my traditional bond ETF, which is like straight up flat. I earn about 2%, you know, 2 to 3% return interest on it. But because interest rates have been going up, the value of my bond ETF has fallen. So I'm about flat on it, maybe up sort of half a percent over the last few years, while these impact investments have been generating, you know, much better than that. Cool. Yeah, that's, um, you know, that interestingly is just, I'd want to think this through before I fully committed to this, but I, I suspect if you look back, if you flash forward 10 years and look back at a, you know, a socially responsible portfolio slash impact portfolio versus traditional, the, you know, the bond component might be the, the biggest area of performance because right. the bond, traditional bond market's just a bubble right now. I mean, interest rates are so low. Got nowhere to go but up. And, and, that, and that to me, you know, there is risk when it comes to these impact investments. Sure, yeah. You know, and, and a big thing is that we're not locked in. So, you know, I do like my bond ETFs for if there's a crash, then, you know, I can sell some of those and then it get, get, get aggressive in the stock market. I couldn't do that with my community bonds. Yeah. Um, but absolutely, I mean, when you look at those, those returns, I'm comfortable with the risk. I did my due diligence, you know, understood the business model and the cash flows and how it works. And I'm pretty confident with it. And for me to be able to earn that, you know, four and a half, five percent annually mm -hmm. is great. Yeah, cool. Um, and my second question now I'm forgetting. Um, so uh, give me a minute here. Oh, so this was actually just a fun topic. It's going to seem like out of the blue. I was, you know, reading more about um, lab-grown meat. Okay. And uh, I don't know if you've been following that at all. Yeah. It's been a fascinating um, topic. And I was actually having a LinkedIn conversation with a buddy of mine, just sort of going through the kind of the mental exercise of is lab, you know, do you expect lab grown meat is a net positive for society or a net negative? And so one of the, and, and normally I would just predispose to think, oh, well, it's net positive because of obviously the, 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 well, it's going to have a massive impact on the entire agriculture industry, um, not just the livestock, but you know, crops that are grown just to feed animals. So then you think about the impact on the farmers, right? And so yeah. does this lead to a loss of incomes in poor countries, you know, entire sectors and industries that are, are, are hampered by that? So I'm, I'm curious if you've looked into the industry at all, you've got any feedback on thoughts on that? And uh, would you just any, like lab-grown meat? Is that... Uh, so I'm I'm definitely keen to try it. Uh, I had A and W's Beyond Meat Burger. You I know. tried to get it. At, I was at a highway stop and they didn't have yeah. it. Okay, maybe they were sold out. Like it's been a popular 
offering there. I think a lot of people are really interested in this. So we'll see. Uh, you know, I can't, I can't really say conclusively. I haven't done any sort of life cycle analysis. Uh, my immediate impact is that, at least from an economic perspective, when we talk about displacement due to technology, that's inevitable, mm -hmm. right? And that, you know, we've seen that time and time again, um, and that we always have to assume that new jobs are going to replace the ones that are lost. Um, I think when it comes to agriculture, because it is fundamentally such sort of a, a, a basic human need, right, that everyone is buying that meat, that uh, that it will result specifically if prices go down, that will, will result in people having more money to spend on other things, right, which will create new jobs. Um, on the environmental side, I mean, definitely meat has a huge impact on the planet, uh, specifically beef and lamb are sort of the most carbon intensive ones. So anything we can do to reduce that, I view as a net positive. Um, I think, you know, ultimately it is a bit of an ethical issue. And I don't have the answer. You know, my, when I check my thought, like I would probably prefer to eat lab grown meat. Um, but everyone is going to have a different perspective on this. So I'm going to sort of pass the buck here a little bit to some degree. I'm going to say it's got potential, that it's still got a long way to go, that there are a lot of unanswered questions. And that really it's something that it, people can kind of search their soul and individually ask themselves. Um, I did work with uh, uh, clients, there were a couple, who were vegan, and we did an entirely vegan portfolio. Uh, I don't know whether this could get included in their portfolio or not, right. but again, I would have to ask them. I don't know if I've got the information to make a decision there. Cool. Well, we'll, we'll leave it there because I could keep going on and on, but uh, <laughs> yeah, that's a... That's a fun time. Like, as people who know me well know that I think that the hamburger is the greatest food ever made. <laughs> I, and I'm also, though, like married to a wife who doesn't eat red meat, and we're trying to specifically reduce our meat consumption. Wow. So it's a real... That hard. sounds like that's... That. Yeah, so I'm, I've, I've got my fingers crossed for this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll see. <laughs> I would, you know, for me, it's, it's, you know, it's one of these things where, uh, you know, part of it is I do acknowledge that, you know, humans have these desires and have these wants and that, you know, it's really hard for environmental reasons to get people to sacrifice. Mm -hmm. really hard. And so, you know, I love this idea of innovation, where for us to be able to come up with alternatives, you know, if it's electric cars, you know, you still want the roadster, but now you can do it without the fossil fuels, you know, um, looking at biofuels and planes. I still, one of my great, you know, sort of things I feel guilty about is I love to travel and explore, but I know the carbon footprint of doing that and I feel horrible. So, you know, I'd love to see innovation in a lot of these areas. But for me, what it comes down to is when our economy starts to price a lot of those negative externalities, if it's CO2 emissions, if it's impacts on people or on the planet, that that's what's going to spur innovation to be able to get something to market that consumers, that's still going to meet that consumer need, but at a much, much lower impact. So to me, like this is the type of innovation that can come from having our economy's incentives better aligned with people and the planet. So I, one more, one quick last question, because I can't resist. Do you have two, it's a two-parter. One, do you have an opinion on if somebody wants to, the, the environment's a real complicated issue. As somebody, I haven't, environment has not been my number one issue, but I care about it. Yeah. I haven't researched it enough to have a strong opinion on this. Do, what, if, if somebody wanted to, make changes to their life that could yeah. make the biggest impact they like they could personally make on the yeah. environment. 
what is that? And then yeah. linked to that is, you know, Copower put out a piece not too yeah. long ago about the impact of your investment portfolio. Yeah. And I didn't see the, the analysis behind how they came up it's with those numbers. So uh, I'll answer both questions at the same yeah. time. Based on their analysis, the biggest thing Canadians can do is decarbonize their portfolio. Yeah. Uh, they looked at the impact of if you've got 100K invested in the equity market in stocks, right? That that is, you know, multiple times the carbon footprint of plane travel, of a meat-based diet, of any of those issues. Like the biggest issue. <laughs> so that's, it's, it's, I think, you know, it was the decarbonizing a portfolio of about 250 or 300K is, is the CO2 equivalent of sort of not having a kid. Wow. And that to me, but again, sadly, you know, and, and I think we also need to acknowledge that as part of this, we talk a lot about the footprint and the negative aspect. I think it's also important to understand the, the positive side of it. You know, that, that for what it's worth, like fossil fuels do make our lives a lot better in a lot of ways. So it's not as if we're just going to completely get away from that overnight. It's about having the market, you know, uh, aligned such that we can incentivize innovations that are going to still allow us to have kids, that are going to allow us to still. So I want you to have your burger. If that, if it means that much to you, <laughs> I do <laughs> not want to deny that for you. Um, but, you know, A, I want you to pay sort of the real price for it. If it is impacting people, if it is impacting the planet, it's probably going to be a little bit more expensive than that, like 99 cent value meal or whatever. Yeah. Right. And that number two is that if we can make it more expensive, that that's going to make uh, alternatives that still meet our needs uh, that much more attractive. But by far and away, there's no doubt based on Copower study, you know, the biggest thing most Canadians can do, if you've got more than, you know, uh, uh, 100K invested in the market, the, the biggest thing you can do in terms of your personal uh, carbon footprint is to decarbonize your portfolio. And I would say that, again, you know, back, that's the ethical side. There's also the financial side and this idea of carbon risk and carbon bubble. Maybe that's a topic for another day. But I'm really worried about Canadians. We have so much money invested, so much of our economy dependent on fossil fuels that if we're serious about meeting these, you know, these climate targets, that we're really not prepared for that. And I have some really serious concerns around those risks, which I don't think the, the Bay Street fully understands those risks yet. So, you know, mm -hmm. I think that it's a way for people absolutely to be able to do the right thing and sort of lower their personal carbon footprint. But I also think there's a real financial imperative there as well. Yeah, I, I, I agree. So um, with that, we've kept you for a long time, so we'll let you go. But um, listen, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. I think we've got actually some real interesting um, topics for, for potentially um, discussing in more detail in a future call. So maybe we'll have to have you back on and, and chat a little more. Uh, anytime. I'm always here for you. Thanks a lot, brother. My, pl my pleasure. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to the Impact Investing Podcast. If you like what you heard, I'd be incredibly grateful if you left a review on iTunes. And uh, heads up, we're now available on most audio platforms, which includes iTunes, but also Spotify, Google, Overcast, you name it. And also can now use Siri to listen to the podcast by saying, hey, Siri, play the Impact Investing Podcast. Here's to the Impact Investing Podcast. Yeah, just like that. You're listening to the Impact Investing Podcast.